Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight's talk, The Processing of Loss and separation. Uh, why do we have feelings? What are the purpose of somatic markers, feelings? Well, they disrupt the normal psychobiological flow states of our normal day-to-day lives. The point of feelings is to inform us that there's been a change in our world that demands adaptation, not just in the way we think, But more importantly, in the way we act, how we, how our bodies orient to change in the world, how we connect with others. So anger's furrowed brow and locked jaw, the gasp of shock, the trembling of fear, and the heartache of loss are there to signal in many ways that there's change. Feelings orient us towards change in the world. So let's look at some examples. When there's a positive connection or a return of a positive connection with someone where you reconnect with a friend or someone you haven't seen for a while, the feelings of a relaxation in your autonomic nervous system, a smile, laughter, a sense of exhilaration and upward energy in the body associated with celebration is the way we signal to both ourselves and to another, uh, reorient to the fact that we now have a connection in our life. And we call that state of feelings and impulses joy. If there's an unthreatening novel situation, we slow down, take in new stimuli, and that's called curiosity. That's how we orient towards change in our environment that's not threatening. If there's an unexpected disturbing event in our life that's completely overwhelms our normal state of perception, our nervous system inhibits action, and we go into a disruption of mobilization, and what we're meant to do is wait until new information occurs, and that's called shock. When we've been mistreated by others, especially those in our clans or uh, any form of mistreatment, frankly, it activates impulses to attack, perhaps push back, to confront. And the feelings of the locked jaw and the energy in the body and the shaking of the action potential in the arms, this is what we call anger. Feelings and impulses are there to signal that something in our life needs adaptation. We need to change our behavior to adapt. When we've had a um, encountered something that's very threatening, a threatening individual, a threatening situation, we feel a contraction in our body, a ramping up of our heart rate, an urge to withdraw, to seek shelter. There's a trembling again of the the uh, the state of uh, the uh, sympathetic nervous system, and that's what we call fear. And then fear orients us to the fact that there's a threat. When there's been a, a disrupting event in our social status, when something has happened that um, in some way compromises our, our status in the world, a social failure, we experience a diminishment of eye contact, uh, a desire to withdraw into isolation, we call this shame or humiliation, and to wait until our status, our tribal status is restored. But the most important, I would argue, is given that we are pack animals, given that human beings are set up um, to attach to each other for emotional support and co-regulation of our nervous system, as pack animals, the loss or separation from a cherished figure, a partner, 
a parent, a pet, a sibling, a good friend, or someone that's been a surrogate figure of wisdom in our life. These losses require extended periods of adaptation. They lead to prolonged periods of dysregulation when there's been a loss. This is due primarily to the fact that as human beings, we connect with other human beings, not really so much to orient into like how we're going to find food or shelter and all of that. The primary reason we connect with each other is literally to sync our autonomic nervous systems and to regulate our nervous systems back to a sense of safety and security in the world where our vagal nerves get toned, our heart rate's slow, we can digest food. All of this comes from reconnecting with other people that we feel safe with in proximity. When we've had a loss, the loss of this co this figure that helps regulate our nervous system, helps us feel safe in the world, helps somebody who with us maintains a running narrative of our lives, there's an absence of essential co-regulation and an, a significant shift in our nervous system. We feel more vulnerable in the world. There's a loss of vagal tone, meaning our heart rate is more likely to soar and then plummet. And most importantly, when there's been a loss, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, a significant region of the brain, diminishes the levels of dopamine and endorphins. And what happens is, there's a reason it does this. It leads to a disinvestment in the world. Freud called it a return of the libidinal desire from the world back into a contraction into the body. It, we wind up in brain fog, depression, sleep, uh, dysregulation. There can be ch changes in appetite. All of these are signals. There's, there's been a significant shift in our nervous system. Now, what is the purpose of these shifts? Why does the, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex diminish both dopamine and endorphins? Why is there a loss of investment in the world? Why is there a loss of vagal tone leading us to become more reactive and vulnerable? Well, the process of grieving informs the right brain, your right hemisphere, that a figure is no longer available. You see, your left brain, the narrative, language-based, uh, conscious part, can very quickly learn that someone is no longer there. But the embodied, significantly uh, more attachment-based right hemisphere takes a very, very long time to learn that someone is no longer available. And part of the process of grieving is to inform the unconscious that that person is no longer available. For example, many, many years after both my parents died, they appeared to me regularly in dreams, which are largely mediated by the right hemisphere. This was signaling to me that my right brain had still not fully accepted that my parents were no longer available for connection and attachment. Likewise, many people can still be revisited by people we've long since lost track of in our lives and dreams because the right brain is people are uh, essentially stored in the right temporal lobe with multiple, multiple circuits and to inform the right brain that someone is no longer available takes a significant amount of re-experiencing again and again and again that they're no longer available. That's why unlike the left brain, which can learn very quickly that someone has passed or we are no longer have a friend or whatever, or a pet has died. 
the right brain because there's so many multiple circuits and this person is so deeply ingrained in the associative regions of the right hemisphere, we experience grief in waves because it takes so much re-experiencing of looking for the person and then remembering that they're not available for this information to sink in to the associative realms of that hemisphere. Now that's just part of the personal process of letting go, which is of course again forming not just the thinking conceptual mind, but the experiential felt mind that someone is no longer available. But letting go and grieving is also a process of the narrative part of the left hemisphere, by which I mean when we lose someone, when we are separated from someone due to a divorce or a breakup or when friends uh, uh, cut each other out or, uh, and so forth, when we lose access to people we've worked with for years due to uh, changes in employment, these losses leave us which, with what's often referred to as unfinished business. Unfinished business means there's an ambiguity in the relationship. For example, someone after the loss of a parent can wonder how much they were truly loved by the parent or what the parent really thought of them. Was the parent really proud of their choices? Very often when we get cut, when we lose a, re a relationship, a marriage or a friendship, or a, uh, uh, we don't really know what the other was thinking. We don't really know how the, whether even some of the choices we made in our interactions uh, are those that we can live with today. So in narrating loss and telling again and again the story of a relationship, the story of a, someone we've lost, not only do we organize our memories in a coherent fashion that we can then live comfortably with rather than having scattered thoughts with so many different completely... Um, disorganized and incompatible views. In narrating, we also can depersonalize unresolved relationships, by which I mean so many relationships are ended without what people nicely call closure, where there's a felt understanding of why the relationship is coming to an end. There's a kind of abrupt cutoff so often, and that is not personal. We can turn it into a story about there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with them or this shouldn't be this way. And all of those additional personalizing, making uh, an unresolved relationship about ourselves can actually make the process of grieving more complicated because we're so lost in trying to figure out what happened or why things happened or what does things mean that the actual experience of feeling and um, allowing the felt grief to happen gets blocked. When we block the physical process of grieving, the tears, the, the, the yearning to, the, or the inclination, I should say, to... Um, become withdrawn, to fold into oneself, to uh, at times just uh, sink into um, a mood of despair. Um, if we block that, then the grieving remains uh, significantly unresolved. And the not only do we no longer inform the right brain that the individual is no longer there or no longer available, but the autonomic nervous system, the midbrain, the left hippocampus fails to integrate the loss into our life. 
placing it in the past. When it's not placed into the past, the unconscious believes that the loss is still happening. And when we believe that the loss is still happening because we haven't done the grieving work, the, uh, we develop a lot of defenses to protect ourselves because we're in an ongoing state of unresolved grief. Maladaptive defenses protect us from reconnecting and re-experiencing the loss. So in the future, in relationships, we'll expect abandonment, we'll become defensive, we'll push people away, we'll flee intimacy, will cut off viable connections and essentially uh, uh, feel easily engulfed by others. Because all of these defenses are essentially saying, one, I haven't yet fully acknowledged and processed the previous loss. I'm still living in the ongoing uh, unresolved grief of a previous divorce, abandonment, loss of a parent suddenly, loss of a sibling, and so forth. So without the full grieving process, which means each time the waves of loss are reactivated, we stop and we sit and we stay with the body and we we bring our attention below the narratives and the story and the the self-referential framing and, and languaging. We put that aside and we just sit with the experience of loss. And in so doing, what we're informing the, what the Buddha called the citta or the emotional mind, we're letting that, that process understand that there's been a significant change in our life and that it requires readaptation. When we haven't fully resolved a loss, people can become preoccupied. If the person is still alive, especially, they might stalk their ex's social media. They might continue to check for emails and messages, even though their logical mind, their left brain knows that no messages will be coming, nothing has come in months uh, or years. Very often we'll mistake others for our exes. We will very often find that our exes will show up frequently in dreams, which is again a signal that the right brain has yet to fully process a loss. So in essence, the, the right temporal lobe, the right amygdala, the, essentially all of the unconscious regions of the right brain still haven't understood and accepted that a loss has happened. And so the preoccupation is a signal that the right brain is still looking for the person. This is a kind of, and we'll talk about uh, this as a moment, preoccupation is an automatic process and it's beyond volitional control very often at first. Now, grieving can be something that strains our patience. We live in our adult life in predominantly left brain narratives where we represent the lived experience very quickly in stories with, which have a beginning and a middle and an end. And in much of our work lives and our daily lives, we're used to some uh, event happening which we deal with and then there it's resolved and it goes away. However, grief, of course, because it's so significant in to the attachment-based right brain. Uh, it keeps coming back in waves and waves and waves because it takes each circuit that expects, that is associated with this individual needs to be essentially broken or switched off. And that takes an enormous amount of time. 
the right brain is notoriously resistant to what's called neuroplasticity. It doesn't change as quickly as left hippocampal regions of the brain. So it takes a while to inform the brain that uh, to what we call move on or to let go or to get over a breakup. Um, and this can strain our patients. It can feel like we've done all the work. Why is it still so painful? Or why is it still, why am I still so gun shy in relationships? Or why am I still so hesitant to move forward into dating or reconnecting with new friends and all that? And when there is this constant or long-term waves that each requiring us to stop and to pay attention and to listen to the body and to be with the experience, um, it can turn into a kind of self-pity. Why is this happening? Why, is, uh, why am I being tormented by this recurrent memories of this unavailable person? this unavailable partner. And um, this is a very important theme in Buddhism. And uh, in a moment, before we go into the meditation, I'm going to talk about how the Buddha uh, resolved this tendency to be, uh, uh, to take grief personally and to wrap it up in stories of, of why me. Um, before I go there, I just wanted to note, because I am, of course, a lot of my work is based on uh, not just the Dharma and not just neuropsychology, but a, one of my great loves, in addition to polyvagal and uh, other ther therapeutic modalities, is attachment work of Bowlby and Ainsworth. And Bowlby the founder of attachment theory had a very profound insight into grieving. In fact, his insights were so profound that his four stages of grief were so profound that they influenced Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of accepting a terminal illness. I'm sure you're all familiar with the, you know, denial, shock, uh, I don't even, I don't know them off the top of my head. I know that there's anger, uh, disbelief, and then there's finally grief and acceptance. Uh, but her work was largely influenced by Bowlby's uh, four stages of grief. Bowlby in the early 1960s uh, studied after years, uh, more than a decade of studying children who lost their parents, some immediately in the aftermath of World War II and for many years later, noted that uh, a four-step theme in grieving. The first, he said, in, in the immediate aftermath of a loss, there's a state of numbness where we're blocking interoception of the overwhelming painful feelings, we're in a state of shock. The loss in numbness is not yet real. Um, the loss at this point is impossible to accept. There is a struggle to recognize, allow, and understand the feelings. And we move in a kind of a haze where a dissociative fog, as it were, and this is essentially a self-protective mechanism because during this state of, uh, of um, a dorsal dive, a shutdown into dissociative depersonalization, what we're doing is we're blocking awareness of our own affects, our own feelings, our own, our own uh, the flooding of, of the overwhelming waves of despair. And this protects us from being too overwhelmed too quickly, the shock. Once the shock wears off, Bowlby noted that there's a state of what he called yearning. As we become aware that a figure we love and have relied on is lost to us, 
the left brain especially searches for soothing distractions, trying to fill the void. It's very common when uh, there's um, a family with children and one of the adults dies, the other partner might very quickly remarry or immediately try to fill the void because of not only the overwhelming stresses of being a parent, but also because very often people in family systems can close themselves off from mutuality and support from others outside of the family. And so they immediately try to fill the void. And this points to, I'd argue, the limitations of uh, the grieving process if we stop it at this state. Essentially, someone will try to bury the loss by filling the space up immediately, or others will yearn to seek or find comfort in alcohol or in just going back to work too quickly and trying to pushing through. It's an attempt to bypass the third stage of grief, which is the part that is the essential stage, which Bowlby called uh, charmingly and in an upbeat way, despair and disorganization. Doesn't come more grim than that, folks, despair and disorganization. This is where Bowlby and many others, I certainly would argue, is the stage where we are now informing the right brain that the figure is lost, we're reorienting our nervous system to the loss. There in the state is the lack of investment in the world and a withdrawal from others, which signals to others we need support. In fact, um, I've read uh, some fascinating papers on grief that posit that grief in evolution throughout the course of the evolution of our species was primarily a way to signal to others in our tribe that we could not function as a full member of the tribe, that we needed support and we needed people to step up and help us process and go through the routines of our day-to-day -day life. So, Grieving is not just an internal process of allowing our nervous system to adapt to loss, but it's a way to signal to others that there's been a significant change in our status and that we can't live up to the normal routines and responsibilities of our lives. <clears throat> it's also, uh, some evolutionary psychologists argue that despair and withdrawal inform others that we're not even a threat anymore to their tribal status, which makes it easier to approach us. Um, so it's very important to note that this third state of despair is really where the internal work predominantly happens. If this despair is cut off, uh, again, not only do, is the right brain uninformed that the loss has happened. The nervous system doesn't over time give the, is given the space to slowly return to homeostasis. The vagal tone doesn't restore for a long time. And there's a failure to accept that anything important has happened. The fourth state or stage Bowlby stated was recovery. This is a very slow process where investment in the world and others is very in a glacial uh, uh, tempo restored. We begin to establish new goals. We begin to, when we lose someone, the future we imagined very often is wiped away. And in recovery, people begin to, um, reconstruct new visions of the future and how they'll fit into the world. They're, they'll develop new daily patterns and they'll begin to slowly trust in relationships. Very often when people have a significant loss, before they fully process the loss, they'll fail to trust 
that relationships can be uh, reliable and durable. They'll have this felt sense that they're forever on the verge of being abandoned or that they'll lose everyone important to them. During the recovery stage is when we do the, the, a lot of the work of talking about loss, where we reconstruct a durable biography of the people we've lost. And what we're doing is we're integrating all the memories and all the ambiguities into a story that even if it's not completely um, clear, at least it's a story that we can fit into our life narrative and we can confidently talk with to others about. So the felt sense that this is um, completely unresolved begins to fade. Now, if we fail to do the, uh, enough of the interpersonal work of sharing about grief, talking about it, reframing the narrative, many of us will interpret loss in terms of it's something about me. It's something personal. It's some form of failure or some form of punishment. And so the key is to disclose our internal experience to others while removing the this is personal element of it. Um, there's a famous, famous tale in early Buddhism uh, of an interaction with the Buddha by a woman named Kisagatami. Kisagatami had a very hard life and um, she lost her only child who was bitten by a snake when the child was just an infant and she had constructed a such a, uh, a, a hope that her child's happiness and fulfillment in life would in some way be a compensation for her own uh, painful life, which had been filled with hardship. And so Kisagotami was so distraught and in such shock that she refused to accept that her child had been had died and she carried around the body of her child with her looking for a, a figure that could bring her child back to life. Now this of course is a metaphor for someone who has not resolved or not uh, gone through the grieving process of feeling the true despair and and gone through the process of acknowledging the loss, not only through feeling it and staying with it, but also someone who had processed it with others. So Kisagatami went to one famous spiritual figure after another, all of whom said that they couldn't help her. I mean, it's not hard to understand their resistance. Here was a woman who was distraught, carrying around the body of a child, uh, hysterical, of course, from pain. And so each figure basically uh, told her to go away. They couldn't deal. And so eventually and a, uh, a wise individual told her to connect with the Buddha. And the Buddha listened as she begged him to bring her child back to life. And the Buddha said, leave your child here with me. And if you can go down to the city, which was not far away, and you can bring me back a few mustard seeds from a household that hasn't, lo hasn't experienced loss, then I, I will guarantee you in doing this that your sorrow and your and this experience will forever be changed and everything will change so she goes down to the city and you have it's worth noting that getting mustard seeds in the indus valley region of india 2500 years ago was exceedingly easy they mustard seed was uh couldn't be more common 
And so she goes down and from house to house, she knocks on the door and she explains that her son has been bitten by a stake. He's dead. Uh, the Buddha said he will help if she can get uh, mustard seeds. And they say, of course. And then she said, but the only thing is I have to get mustard seeds from a household that has an experience loss. And the individual at the door would say, well, I can happily give you the mustard seeds, but we just lost our uncle yesterday. So she'll go to the, she go, Kisa Gatami goes to the next house and explains the situation. And the individual there says, well, I just lost my mother. And then she goes to another house and the individual says, I just lost my sibling, my brother, or I just lost my son too. And in this process, what happens is Kisa Gautami realizes that the experience of loss, while painful and real, is something that is in no way personal. It is the ongoing experience of life. It is the unrelieved, can never be addressed, can never be changed uh, fact of our existence. And in so doing, when Kisagatami returns to the Buddha, she no longer expects him to bring the child back. She accepts that none of this is about her. And she begins the process of um, becoming a renunciate and doing the grief work, which she talked about later in her, in her writings, and then later becomes uh, a very, very, very famous figure in early Buddhism. So, in this is a, a metaphor in Buddhism for the process of disclosing loss and in hearing and in connecting with others, not only do we frame the narrative and make sense of it, but we also, it sinks in that our loss is not about us that loss is a transpersonal, universal, transhistorical, it's the essential fact of existence. And it is nonetheless very, very painful. So um, I think what I'm gonna do now is lead though a meditation that is I think the most useful meditation in helping us uh, do what could be called grief work. It's based on um, what's called, uh, was developed by Michelle McDonald and other, uh, Tara Brock and some others. It's called RAIN, Recognize, Allow, Investigate, Nurture. Uh, it's a very simple process of how to be with the painful emotions associated with, or painful feelings, I should say, associated with difficult events in our life. So what I'd like you to do is get really comfortable and find a position where you can just relax or an upright position if you prefer, where you can just find a good balance. And, um, If I should note, uh, if you'd like to support what I do as a Buddhist pastor, by the way, um, the Venmo, I keep on forgetting to announce this early. <laughs> um, it's just Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, uh, thank you for that. But let's go into the practice. Let's... Uh, just find that comfortable seated position um, and closing the eyes and um, just allowing ourselves to come to a complete or slow down in life so we can come to a complete stop. And this means one, giving ourselves permission to 
put aside for a little while any thoughts about uh, just events of today or plans for later this evening. It means giving ourselves permission to not do anything, to bring our awareness entirely back into our body. Mindfulness means bringing awareness into our internal experience, the felt sense of our body, the breath, our feelings, the quality of the attention without any judgment, without any expectations, starting wherever we are. We don't have to just drop into a state of ease. If the mind is jumpy or the body is anxious, if we feel unsettled, that's fine. That's a perfectly reasonable place to start a mindfulness practice. Just start wherever we are, not trying to be anywhere else or experience anything else. Just experience what's happening internally. Mindfulness is a little bit like Imagine watching a documentary and turning off the volume so you can't hear the voiceover. You just see the images. In mindfulness, we turn off as best we can the inner narrative, the storytelling, the inner voiceover of life. And we're just going directly to the felt sensations of the living body. And of course, thoughts won't switch off that easily. So no matter how many times you try to turn down the volume, suddenly the volume will snap back up on its own and you'll start to hear the thoughts and views and opinions and maybe your mind will try to change the channel, switch you away from the what's happening internally and try to whisk you away into images about things that might happen in the future or things that have perhaps happened today. So each time that happens, we just bring, we change the channel back to the body, the felt sensation of ourselves breathing, sitting, the contact with the chair or the couch or the floor. And we turn down the volume of the narrating inner chatter, bring the volume back down and just pay attention to what it's like being in a body right now. How does your breath feel? The Buddha asks in the first stage of meditation, is the breath short or long? I like to always incline my breath my out-breath to be as long and smooth as possible. Doing that engages the vagal nerve, releases acetylcholine. This helps slow down respiration, heart rate, allowing me to settle. So just inclining us to this very long, relaxed, smooth exhalation. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. 
nothing to take care of, a time where we fully land in our life. Release the shoulders, allowing them to fall away from the ears. If it's helpful, gently pulling the shoulders back to open up the chest. Releasing any clenching in the jaw. Just trying to get the body back to a neutral state before we do the rain. Take a nice full inhalation through the nose and a really long exhalation, allowing all of the energy and stress out so we can get to a nice relaxed place before we do the practice. So at this point, I'd invite you to bring to mind an individual from whom we've become separated. For this practice, I'd encourage using someone that is not too, that will not uh, be too traumatic. This is just uh, introducing the practice. So someone with whom there's been a distance or a separation or a figure we've lost but doesn't feel too emotionally hot, but where there is still enough feelings that it's worth doing the practice and just hold an image of this individual in mind or an image that could be an image, of course, of an animal we've loved or even a place we've loved that we are no longer with, available to reconnect with. Holding the image in mind Shifting through images until you find one that maybe begins to evoke a felt shift in the body. And just ask yourself, how does it feel? How does it feel to be disconnected from someone, something we love? or cared about, or cherished? How does it feel? How does it feel? And then the R of rain means recognize wherever there's any experience of loss as a feeling in the body. 
Just recognize where it is. If nothing appears, then you can change the image or change the person you're working with. If the loss is largely unresolved, we'll still feel it very much in the body, in the stomach, in the heart. Or loss that we've grieved somewhat and have worked deep into the process might just be felt with a sadness, a tear, a heaviness in the face. Grief moves up from the hollowness in the chest, the lump in the throat, and as we process, it moves up into the face very often. Just recognize any felt sense of heaviness, numbness, quivering, contraction. And then allow, allow the internal experience, if it can, to spread to the external can you feel it in your face or in the external body? Can you find, can you allow the feelings not just to be locked up in the internal visceral sense of the body, but can we feel it? Can we allow it to spread?
So much of our lives we run from anger, sadness, fear, grief, frustration. We try to inhibit it. We develop defenses or ways to block awareness of it. But in grief work, what we want to do is allow it to not be contained, but to be manifested externally so we can be with. In doing this, we are helping the deeper regions of the unconscious and associative mind to accept loss. So the A is allowing the experience, the feelings to fully manifest themselves. The eye of rain stands for investigate, just be with the experience, be curious about it. Rather than be frightened of sadness or loss or disappointment, just open to it. with curiosity, not judgment. Interest. Taking our time.
and the end of rain refers to nurture the part of our awareness that can observe that can move through the experience of any affect state, grief or otherwise, that can just observe, can also adapt some of the characteristics of our highest sense of self, a caring, loving, kind, supportive presence, that can sift through all of the fear, feelings and sensations, the state of the mind that might be jumpy or heavy, dull, foggy. Awareness can take all this in and just greet it all with compassion, patience, care, giving ourselves all of the kindness and appreciation that we so long for from others, attention, empathy, care, understanding, bringing all of that to the, to these deep feelings of disconnection and disappointment. How can we take care of the part of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that are vulnerable. So in a moment, I'm going to 
ring the bowl and just take your time part of the the uh, practice of meditation is to bring with us into the rest of our lives the awareness of the body and our eternal experience rather than at the end of a meditation to simply lose awareness of the body and just go back into uh, fixation with the world around us. We bring back a balanced awareness. Thank you for listening. I hope something in there was in tonight's talk or practice proves to be of value in your life. Once again, before we go to the questions, um, if you'd like to support my work, it's uh, Dharma Punks with an X NYC on Venmo or Dharma Punks with an X NYC.com as the PayPal. And uh, 